What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Bloomberg, sound on. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Democrats demanding more after White House concessions on stimulus ants. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo urging U.S. app stores to bar untrusted Chinese apps. We dive into the specifics. Plus, our very own David Weston's exclusive interview with Dr. Fauci. You can hear it right here, folks. Lots to get through. Foreign policy on my radar. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo urging that businesses cut ties with Chinese tech companies and apps. We're going to dive into that coming on up. It comes, of course, following the TikTok developments. But we're going to start with my good buddy, Greg Giroux. Greg, of course, is... Bloomberg government elections reporter, uh, and no one knows all of the ins and outs of virtually every district, rural, urban. He knows he's like a he's like a walking map. So we're, I'm, I always enjoy uh, talking to Greg. All right, Greg. You know, House incumbents from both parties were defeated last night in some primaries, and I was looking at the numbers uh, on the Bloomberg terminal. Everyone was talking about Lacey Clay in particular, who has represented St. Louis for the past 20 years, following his namesake father's 32 years in the same seat. Uh, But then you've got losses by Steve Watkins, a Republican from Kansas. Uh, You've got just it was it was a really interesting night. Can we gauge anything from the challengers defeating two more House members in primaries last night, Greg? I mean, what do you make of this? Well, it's definitely an above-average number of incumbent losses in primaries. We're up to seven right now, which is the most primary losses by incumbents in a year without redistricting since 1974. But still, the overwhelming majority of incumbents get reelected in primaries as well, and the overwhelming majority get reelected in the general election. We had a lot of for, there are a lot of different reasons why these seven incumbents have been defeated, some personal, some legal, uh, some political, some a mix thereof. Uh, but um, it's definitely an above-average number of incumbent losses we've seen. And then you've got this whole situation in Tennessee, uh, President Trump going all in to aid Bill Hegarty. He is the former ambassador to Japan in the Republican race for the seat of retiring Senator Lamar Alexander. I don't think most people are are focusing on these primaries. You know, there's so much other news going on. But I bring it up because I'm wondering if it, we could use anything as a crystal ball for the down ballot races on November 3rd, especially when you've got these fiscal battles on Capitol Hill. We'll talk about that coming up too, folks. But I'm beginning with politics tonight because everybody wants to know what the lay of the land's going to be on these down ballot races, especially as we're all trying to get through this recovery, well, the math in the Senate and the House, Greg, as you know better than anybody, 
is really going to set the tone for the policy. So where are we at in terms of your crystal ball? Well, it looks like the House Democrats are more likely than not to hold their majority in the House. They may even increase their majority by a few seats. And the Senate map has gotten pretty interesting as well. If you asked me a few months ago, I would have said the Republicans were more likely than not to hold their majority. But now, I'm not so sure. I think Democrats probably have at least a 50-50 chance of flipping the Senate. They need a net gain of three or four seats. Depending on the outcome of the presidential election, Republicans have 53 Senate seats right now. Uh, but, um, you know, one reason why I think Democrats and fortunes are a little bit brighter than they were a few months ago is directly tied to the presidential race. And we see a much closer relationship than we've had ever before in how states vote for president and how they vote down ballot for U.S. House and U.S. Senate. And so long as the president trails Joe Biden in the polls, he's going to make it tougher on Republicans to hold that Senate majority and to win back the House majority. See, I find this interesting in Iowa because I'm I'm obsessed with the Senate race. This is probably my 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 down ballot obsession. This is really obsession uh, for <laughs> for 2020. Uh, Senator Joni Ernst, what tell me? Give people a lay of the land because because here's Senator Joni Ernst, a veteran. Uh, uh, perceived to be, you know, very tapped into to Republican leadership. You know, Iowa so important in presidential politics uh, for Republicans, especially uh, agriculture, ethanol. I mean, you name it. She's in the eye of the storm of it. And now she finds herself leading against a very progressive challenger, but leading not by as much of a margin as President Trump. So I kind of set it up. But what else do we know about Iowa? And why is it so? So why am I so fascinated by it? Well, I'm fascinated by it, too, and you're not alone. Um, Iowa is so fascinating because it's a state that voted pretty strongly for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012, yeah. but then it swung heavily to back Donald Trump in 2016. Um, so it's a very much a swing state, even though 2016 didn't really bear that out. Um, Joni Ernst, very strong candidate, but she had the advantage in 2014 of running as the, you know, the kind of the out party, the challenger. There was an open seat. Tom Harkin was retiring, and she was well-positioned in a very good Republican year. It was the second midterm of Barack Obama, and she really rode the wave to victory that year. Now she's running as an incumbent in a much more challenging political environment. Yeah, it it, it really is truthfully uh, fascinating. And for that music, we've got, a, a cu- I believe we have a couple more minutes uh, left on the clock, But so so we'll keep going. But I think I have more time, if not... I'll get cut off, but that's the magic of live radio. Greg Drow is on the line. He is a Bloomberg government uh, reporter. We're talking about all of the down-ballot races. And Teresa Greenfield is the progressive who is challenging Senator Joni Ernst, a Republican uh, in the the state of Iowa. Uh, There's this new uh, graphic on the Bloomberg terminal, and I mentioned it on Bloomberg Surveillance earlier today. I'm obsessed with it, Greg, because it, it, it kind of matches what... What you do so well on Bloomberg government, where you can really look at the map of all the different congressional races and the polls and whatnot. Uh, but this map kind of takes that approach. But the the title of it is where the $521 billion in U.S. small business aid went. And that, of course, is the last round of the economic stimulus. So I'm looking at Iowa. And I think the, the the notion is, oh, there's all this money coming out of Washington and the well-connected can get all of the uh, can get all of the the loans you know, if they're, if they're well-connected. But that's really not the case because Iowa, you would think, or even Kentucky, you would think that they would get all the money. And yeah, I'm not. it's hard to kind of give some references, but in the state of Iowa, there were only, uh, comparatively speaking, 
there was 44,848 active loans, which supports 71.9% of small businesses receiving the loans in a state in which 65% of the job, small business jobs are supported. You contrast that with like a state like California, where there's 556,000 active loans that were made uh, as a result. Clearly, California is a bigger state. But I, I say that is if you have a, uh, some time to play with this map, you can track via congressional district how many loans from the last round of small businesses went to your congressional district or others. How is, that's a really long segue into my question to you, Greg, how is are these business loans and economic uh, stimulus playing in these races? Is it a local issue or is it a referendum on Trump? Well, most of this election is probably going to be a referendum on Trump. That's at least what the Democrats want. Yeah. Um, they, they want a straight-up-or-down vote on either Trump or Biden. They feel that Biden can win that, whereas the president and his supporters want to make this a choice election, that uh, I'm going to be better than the alternative in Joe Biden. As far as like economic loans and uh, you know benefits coming to states and districts, um, yeah, it's very important. I think you're going to see incumbents wanting to tout um, investments and spending that comes in the district and promote it as heavily as they can. Uh, certainly uh, incumbents need things to run on. Um, and if you're running in a state that's politically competitive or that leans uh, maybe to the other party, like if you're a Republican incumbent running in a district or a state that may not vote for President Trump, you may want to downplay the national factors in the race as much as you can and try and localize the race by talking about very specific things you've done for very specific industries that are important to your state or your district. So meanwhile, give us in the, in the minute that we have left, we talked about Iowa. What are some other races? Uh, and, and hold with me after the break, by the way, because I want to ask you uh, about the presidential as well. But what is, what's another race on your radar? Well, I think the, there's kind of like the core four Senate races that Democrats are trying to target from Republican control. Colorado, held by Cory Gardner. Arizona, held by Martha McSally. Maine, held by Susan Collins. And North Carolina, held by Tom Tillis. Democrats may need to win all four of those races in order to win control of the uh, Senate because they have to brace for the possible, if not likely, loss of Alabama, which is held by Democrat Doug Jones in a very Republican uh, right. state. But then the Democrats have some secondary targets. You know, Iowa may not, you know, maybe Iowa's a primary target, but it's definitely in the running. Um, Georgia, there are two races there where Republicans are defending seats. And Montana is also a big state where um, you have the Democratic governor, yeah. Steve Bullock, challenging the Republican incumbent there. All right, Greg, stay for me because I want to talk more about this. Greg Drew is going to stick around on the policy and the politics of the down ballot races. I'm Kevin Cerulli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cerulli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Coming up, we're going to hear from our very own David Weston's exclusive interview with Dr. Fauci. Uh, and he's asking about tests and masks and all of the stuff that we all care about with regards to kids getting back to school. Are they? Aren't they? Check out the full interview, by the way, on wherever you get Bloomberg. Listen to, watch it, download it on the app, you know, the whole spiel. Uh Someone else who knows the spiel about the midterm elections, Greg Giroux. Greg, okay, so in the first block we were talking about, uh, you know, the Senate, the House, how the economy's playing and whatnot. But 
you know, I, I, I'm very much struck by something that we've been talking about on this program for a while and uh, something that I've been reporting on for a couple of weeks now, which is mail-in voting. How is mail-in voting going to impact your job in trying to predict whether the House or the Senate, if it's going to flip? I mean, forget about presidential politics for a second. This is going to have an impact on local elections. Yeah, well, I think there are two important points to make there, and one is is that we really no longer have an election day. We have an election period, and people are going to start asking for absentee ballots and mail ballots, and they're going to be start casting them in September, well before the national election day that we all know in the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And secondly, as far as when it comes to predicting elections, yes, I think all of us in the media are going to have to be very careful and precise and, and relay to our clients and our readers that um, a greater percentage of the vote is going to come in late and that we really should be hesitant about calling certain races early in the evening because um, that's based just on people who show up and vote because there's going to be a much larger percentage of votes that will be cast by mail. This will, I think, uh, require um, you know, some patience and also it will lead to maybe some, uh, it might also require that the Senate, you know, the, the majority for the Senate, and even the presidential election, who may not know the results of election night or maybe even a day or two after. See, that's what you just said. I, I said it a million times and people say it as if the public understands this, meaning I don't fully comprehend, <laughs> comprehend this. I'm reminding myself that November 3rd, we're not going to have the results like we're all used to. I mean, folks, you remember Florida? You remember that picture with the hanging chad? Do you remember that? I mean, it's 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 ingrained into my memory. Uh, but but all of these types of counts uh, on down ballot races and whatnot, we really might not know for a while. And so, you know, this fight over funding and whether or not there's the transition, it's already happening. And so even if a 10%, 5% even, of an increase in mail-in voting, it's going to have a dramatic, dramatic impact uh, on what what uh, what we do in terms of getting election results. All right, Greg, you've been so generous with your time. What is on your radar? It doesn't have to be a race. What's on your radar in the in the minute that I have left with you? Well, we've got about 90 days to go until the national election day, and I think we're going to be what we've got uh, maybe about another dozen or states that have left to hold primaries. And then uh, I think the two biggest ones to watch for those watching primaries are in Massachusetts, where you have Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richie Neal has a primary challenge yeah. worth watching. That's on September the 1st. And then the biggest of them all, I think, of the whole election year is in the Massachusetts Senate race, where you have veteran Democrat Ed Markey being challenged for his seat in the primary by Joe Kennedy, a member of the probably the Democratic political family. I can't wait to watch that. That is like, if, you're a, if, you, if you watch politics the way that, you know, the way that you're a junkie, like a political junkie, that the Marquis Ken Kennedy, the Kennedys are back in Massachusetts. What's going to happen? I can't wait to find out. Greg Drew, Bloomberg government political reporter, such the best in the business. I mean, so great to have your brain on this program. Come back soon. It's been too long. Hope everything is going well with you and the fam. All right. Let's just agenda set for the hour, shall we, folks? President Trump is set to address the nation at his daily coronavirus task force briefing. I'm going to bring you that as it happens from the White House. And the U.S., I want to I get to the market, though, because our first topic on the stimulus is directly impacting the market. Reading from the Bloomberg Terminal, to set the scene, the S&P 500 index posted a fourth straight advance. 
amid encouraging news on the vaccination front and speculation that U.S. lawmakers are making progress on an economic aid package. The benchmark stock gauge rose to within 2% of its record closing high and a measure of global equities was near wiping out its losses for the year. Wow. All right. So we begin with the optimism coming from this town. Democrats, meanwhile, are demanding more after White House concessions on stimulus. They say that if the two sides are going to meet their goal of striking a deal on new pandemic relief by the end of this week, they got to get the timeline into check. All right. Schumer, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, he says, quote, while we have started to generate some forward momentum, we need our partners in the White House to go much further on a number of issues. We begin tonight with Richard Fowler, nationally syndicated radio show host and Fox News contributor, and Tyler Deaton, Republican strategist and fundraiser, president of Allegiance Strategies. Richard, what do Democrats want to see? Don't give me talking points. Get into specifics, because this now is a race against the clock for so many American families. I agree. This is a race against the clock. And let me just add that the Democratic, uh, the HEROES Act, which was passed months ago, uh, and if Mitch McConnell was willing to negotiate this thing months ago when we thought that this bill was necessary and needed, we wouldn't be in this position. But Mitch McConnell and Republicans in the White House waited until the deadline for the $600 on unemployment benefits to run out for them to negotiate this. So here we sit with millions of Americans who are currently Okay, okay, I'm interrupting. I'm interrupting because I'm interrupting because I respect you and because I want to get into specifics because so many people right now who are impacted by the unemployment benefits and no truthfully, I mean and and I I'm talking to those people who are impacted by it and I'm talking to the small businesses who really need to get their information on the specifics. The White House, because yesterday I didn't have this information, today I have it. The White House has offered four hundred dollars per week in supplemental unemployment benefits through December 14th. All right, so Democrats are rejecting that because they want $600 per week, and Mnuchin and Meadows are also saying that they put $200 billion in state and local aid, including $105 billion in education money on the table. Democrats want a trillion dollars. So let's just focus on what your first point was, was the unemployment uh, benefits, which is $400 a week until December 14th. Democrats say 600. Well, that's about as good as an offer and, 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 and through December. How, what we're, I mean, they're stuck. So, I mean, I guess what would, what would Democrats agree to if the $400 isn't enough for them, Richard? Because this is not about this is not a game of high stakes poker. This is a game of people figuring out how they're going to pay rent, how they're going to make their car payments, how they're going to put food on their kids' table after losing their jobs and no fault of their own. And this is not a situation where people are. I mean, Steve Mnuchin and I think the White House chief of staff is trying to make this out that they're millions of Americans who are taking advantage of the system uh, and they're, you know, making more money than they made and not by, but by working. And the truth of the matter is what we're saying is these Americans need this money to survive. They've lost their job of no fault of their own. And we need to continue to extend this benefit for $600 until the end of the year. Until we figure out a a, a national strategy to deal with this pandemic, which is White House refuses to do. Tyler, is that your interpretation in terms of the issue that, that Richard raised? 
raised that President Trump's saying? Because at the last week, they were saying, no way, no how, not going to happen on unemployment benefits. This week, they're saying, okay, 400 bucks through December 14th. Because you know this. Secretary Mnuchin is navigating through the a divided Republican caucus. Leader McConnell is saying that 15 to 20 of his own members in his caucus aren't going to get on board with any, any bill that comes out. You've got Ted Cruz saying there should be no unemployment benefits. I don't know. I mean, they're trying to they're offering, hey, this is the best that, that we can deliver for the votes in the Republican side, Tyler. Or do I have it wrong? I don't know that you have that part wrong, but I'll tell you, I think it's the extended unemployment benefits are one of the more reasonable requests that Democrats are making. And I think it would be smart for Republicans to meet them in the middle on that because it's the trillion dollars for state and local government. It's just it's every other progressive idea that Democrats have ever had that got into the HEROES Act, which is frankly why that was so easy to pass three months ago is because they didn't say no to anything. Well, and and, you know, when you ever wanted to include. I said this uh, to Pharaoh earlier today on on uh, the open on Bloomberg Television. I said, Jonathan, you read the Heroes Act. You got the state and local tax deduction in there. Salt. There's a there's a wonky term. Salt. Uh, state and local tax deduction. And I know a lot of centrist Democrats who are representing some uh, some more. Uh, swing districts who are not necessarily going to get on board uh, with uh, with the progressive approach to the state and local tax deduction. Another, another. I, I like that analogy, Richard Fowler, of the poker chips. Another poker chip, a political poker chip. But it is kind of dark when you think about it, though, because it it's too. I don't like covering this as a process story because it's too real. You know what I mean, Richard? But I but I do like that analogy. Maybe when we have a different debate, I'll I'll bring that back up. But uh, <laughs> Democrats, Democrats have said that they can accept ten billion dollars in aid for the U.S. Postal Service this year, as opposed to the twenty-five billion that they had wanted over the three years. So they're they're bargaining on the U.S. Postal Service. That caught my attention because I've been covering the mail-in voting, and I'm thinking to myself, maybe not the best time to cut funding from the postal service, but postal service. But you know who? Knows? I anyway. So that's what's going on uh, in terms of in the weeds. But again, I want to repeat this because if you're just you know finishing a, a tough day at work or, or trying to get some details on these unemployment benefits, uh, it's four hundred dollars per week in supplemental unemployment benefits through December fourteenth. That's what the uh, White House is now offering through December 14th. Um, So that's important. Coming up, we're going to talk more policy politics with a little personality with Richard Fowler, nationally syndicated radio show host and Fox News contributor, and Tyler Deaton, Republican strategist and fundraiser of Allegiance Strategies. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Make sure you all go out and watch Bill Gates' the interview that he did with Emily Chang, our, my colleague Emily Chang. It's a, you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. That song, that is my pandemic anthem. Listen to the 
There it is. Poetic. These aren't the best of times, but they're the only times we've ever known, folks. Billy Joel. I've been on a Billy Joel kick uh, for a while. I don't know. He's kind of, he's my vibe right now. Uh, Tyler Deaton's on the line. He's a Republican strategist. Tyler, do you like uh, Billy Joel? What's your favorite Billy Joel song? I was afraid you were going to ask me that. I'm not into Billy Joel. Wow. I think right now, Who isn't I'm into Billy still... Joel? It's like, it's like he's a, he's a staple. I mean, you don't like you don't like Billy. Hey, you don't like Billy. I'll tell Joel. you what, I am. You know that I have been on my Lizzo kick for well over <laughs> oh a year now. I have nothing I against Lizzo, pandemic. but the way that you just pivoted from Billy Joel to Lizzo is remarkable. But I do like Lizzo. Well, I have nothing against that's Lizzo. That's where I live, and the pan, the pandemic has just driven me even deeper into Lizzo's arms. All right. Well, hey, good for you. What's your favorite Lizzo song? It hurts. Yeah, I mean that's a I can't say the lyrics, but it's a great it's a great song. Um uh Richard Fowler's also on the line. Richard is a Democratic insider. He's a nationally syndicated radio show host and a Fox News contributor. Richard, what's your favorite Billy Joel song? Sing us a song, you're the piano man, and the truth does hurt. What? I like both. Uh, <laughs> wait, I missed I missed the last part. What did you just say the truth does hurt? I'm like what? And the truth, and the truth does hurt. I like both songs. Oh, sorry, I didn't. I, I okay. um, Turnstiles is the name of the album from. It's the fourth studio album by Billy Joel. It was released in 1976 when he wrote that amazing, incredible song "Summer Highland Vaults," which it could just be a poem. Um, I don't know if you guys have been following this. I want to. Uh, <laughs> our producers are now in the group chat, literally actively typing out Lizzo lyrics. Um, here I am having a moment of, cath- of cathartic release on air. <laughs> and they're like, thanks, Tyler. Uh, but I want to pivot now to foreign policy on U.S.-China relations because um, this it, it was fascinating today to watch Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He was at the White House earlier today, uh, just within the last hour and a half, I believe. And, and, and he announced that uh, the United States is really looking to uh, make it more difficult uh, for Chinese-backed companies to have applications, apps on on mobile device platforms. So the iTunes Store and what, however else, if you have another type of phone, however else you get apps. And we've seen this on a host of different dating apps, of course, on TikTok. Uh, and and now the the U.S. government as a whole uh, is looking into this uh, much more strategically. And it's it's been really fascinating to 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 watch and actually on Bloomberg Television in the next hour I will be interviewing Keith Crock who is uh, a, a, a works at the State Department he's the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs he's been on this program several times uh, and and is one of the people really crafting these types of policies but the reason I bring it up to the panel um, is one Tyler I want to get your policy analysis of this but also I do want to dive into the politics of it as well. Pompeo said, Tyler, that the U.S. wants to see untrusted Chinese apps removed from app stores like those operated by Apple and Google. He also called for companies to limit their apps from phones made by Huawei Technologies and for ending the use of Chinese cloud providers. The guidance Pompeo announced stopped short of an ultimatum and wasn't binding, but it does represent an escalation in President Trump's effort to limit the spread of Chinese technology, which U.S. officials say imperils Americans' private information and national security. Tyler, I mean, to to kind of use a parallel here, 
It wasn't. It was in 1926 when the when in San Francisco, uh, a gentleman by the name of John Baird invented the television out in San Francisco, and he demonstrated it publicly. Of course, it wasn't until post World War II when the television became mainstream. Uh, and, and most Americans adopted the television to have in their house, but then the regulations that had followed. Here we are, two plus, about two decades after the iPhone radically altered the way we all conduct our entertainment, our professional lives, and, and whatnot. And it seems like now regulations are slowly catching up, but quickly now. We're in the, it took a long time, but now here we are phase. Are we not, Tyler? I think we're we're way late to this game. Yeah. I mean, these regulations are a long time coming. I, I think it's shocking that Congress has taken this long, but also to me it's shocking that Congress has to take these steps. The fact that Apple and Google can't on their own as corporations get these apps out of their app stores. I mean, I, I just want to make sure that people understand what's happening with TikTok. It's not that it's just like a, a video app that teenagers use to like do funny videos or make fun of the president. Like that's not the problem. It's that this is an app that is downloading sensitive information off of the phones of every person who downloads the app. It knows your GPS. It knows your passwords. It knows every other app that you've downloaded. And it's tracking the things that you're typing and doing with your phone completely outside of the app, outside of TikTok. All of this information is then going back to China we have no idea right now what's been happening with that information. My hunch is that someone in the U.S. government does know what's happening with that information in China and that it's nefarious. And there's more than enough information at this point that anybody should be deleting TikTok off of their phones. But more than that, Apple and Google should do the right thing. I would just say that Secretary Pompeo's outline of these ideas, it's big. Um, I don't think that you have to do this all in one giant bill. I think that they could just tackle these discreetly one at a time and have some real bipartisan support. Um, this really shouldn't be that political. This is all pretty common sense at this point. I think that parents would be shocked to know um, just how much private information is going off of their phones into a computer server in China when their kid downloads TikTok. See, I would even... I hear, so that's Tyler just outlined the case for why for why this is happening. But I would even go I would even just raise from a practical, non technological standpoint. I mean, I, I I made the comparison to television regulations because that's what I hear from my sources a lot, is is utilizing, you know, would you allow for the Communist Party of China to to take out an ad on the nightly news? You know? I mean so there's that element of this and I it's a similar to election ads with Russia and whatnot, but but sticking with this, I mean, just from a cultural perspective, that they, they raise the concerns of a China-backed company skyrocketing and having a dramatic impact. Even you made the national security point, but having a cultural impact on what children are dancing to and doing and. I mean, it's it's really interesting. Coming up, we're going to be on standby for President Donald Trump uh, and his remarks at the White House and more Billy Joel. This is Vienna. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 991. Uh, I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Uh, also on the tech front today, Instagram launching a TikTok clone. Uh, so she dives into that as well on Bloomberg Technology. Another great interview from my colleague David Weston is his exclusive with Dr. Anthony Fauci, and they talked all about vaccinations. 
All right, here's a pop quiz for those, for those listening at home. The Department of Defense awarded how much money today in government contracts to procure syringes for COVID-19 vaccines? So once we get the vaccine and it's in development, how much money do you think the government contracts awarded today for just the syringes, literally just the syringes for these uh vaccines for once it's in development. Richard Fowler, is on, Richard Fowler is on the line. He is a nationally syndicated radio show host and a Fox News contributor. And Tyler Deaton, he is a Republican strategist and fundraiser and president of Allegiance Strategies. Richard, how much money you think they're going to pay for the syringes? Oh, I would say $100 billion if I was a guessing man. Uh, not, just the syringes, not the vaccine, like just the syringes. $100 bill? That yeah. Really? All right. Tyler, what do you think? I mean, I would pay any amount. Isn't any amount that we spend here better than getting COVID? Well, all right, Tyler. You know, you're just you're 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 giving me answers today that are very interesting. Uh, Emily asked Bill Gates about vaccines. Before I tell you the answer to the question, you're gonna have to keep listening. Uh, about the vaccines, take a listen to what Bill Gates says about vaccination developments. Here it is. U.S. picture where we show up strategically, humanitarianly, and to help ourselves to avoid the disease coming back in a super effective way. So right there, and I did a terrible job of teeing that up, and I've been trying to improve on how I toss to sounds. Uh, but right there, what he was talking about was the economic stimulus and why he is advocating for additional funds to be allocated in the stimulus for there to be, uh, to help developing countries to combat this disease so that they also have access to uh, the, vac the vaccines and this humanitarian aid. And, you know, my question to, to Tyler Deaton is some Republicans are on board with that. You think back to the Bush years and with PEPFAR, for example, and all of the incredible work that yeah. PEPFAR, PEPFAR is incredible, um, and, and what they were able to do for Africa for, uh, for, for various diseases and, 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 but here we are in an economic crisis when we don't even have a vaccine and people are fighting to keep their jobs if they're fortunate enough to have one. You know, is this something that as lawmakers are up negotiating that they should be thinking about, that they should be listening to Bill Gates about, Tyler? Uh, I think so. I think that this is one of these issues where we're going to pay for it one way or the other. And either we, you know, address this in the short term, we get the needles that we need, we get the vials that we need. I understand there have been some vial shortages as well. You know, the world just was not prepared to need this many doses this quickly. But the more that we invest now, the cheaper it's going to be for us in the long term, both in hard costs and the costs of, of all the people who are getting sick and people who are dying. So uh, I, I don't actually know that there's going to be a lot of GOP resistance on this. I think that people um, understand that we're going to have to make investments to make sure that corona is contained around the world, not just in the U.S. Richard, you think we're going to get some additional funds to help the U.S. because if we don't, you know, you know, you know who will do it for cheaper and on it's China, right? I mean, so that if the U.S. doesn't, that part is true. I think we're going to have to see a robust investment into getting this vaccination out. And I think beyond that, I really do think when we look at when we look back at this pandemic, I think we're also going to have to take an, uh, take a really good look at our healthcare system overall and think about. 
is this current healthcare system, the way it's currently structured, is this best serving the American people the way that it should? And what changes must be made? And how do we have a sweeping overhaul of healthcare to make it work for every American? Because I think we now know that our health care system cannot serve the care and capacity of all Americans. If we can't afford for 1% of our population to get sick and our, and our health care system deal with that, we have some more work to do as a country. It's, it's really remarkable. And $104 million in government contracts today to procure syringes for the COVID vaccine. The Department of Defense awarded $104 million in government contracts today just for the syringes. So, I mean, they are I, – I keep track of this because I, once once we get the headline of, oh, we have a vaccine, I mean, it's bigger than that. It's, it's the syringes. It's the development. It's the supply chains, domestic cyber, uh, allowing individuals to have access to it, children to have access. There are so many issues that we're about to all have a national conversation about. And Bill Gates just made me think that it's not just a domestic conversation, it's also a global conversation. Because at the end of that quote was, what he told Emily Chang was, look, I mean, if it if this keeps ravaging in, in underdeveloped countries, it could, you know, come back. It could, it could come back. Uh, and no one wants that, obviously, to, to happen. So that soft power, uh, really, really important uh conversations to be having and included. And, and I just got the headline on my Bloomberg terminal from the president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on the terminal. Uh, he says that uh, they are finished negotiating for the day. Still no major breakthrough. No major breakthrough on the economic stimulus front. Just to reset here, we are awaiting the president of the United States, President Trump, to begin talking about, I'm sorry, to, to start his coronavirus daily task force briefing. Uh, we're talking about the vaccinations. Uh, but bef- while we kind of wait for that to happen. I do want to get what's on the panel's radar. Uh, so, Richard, what is on your radar? What's one story that you um, want to talk about, think that we should be talking about that we're not talking about, Richard? I think the one big story that I saw that was a very interesting one was last night's election returns from the state of Missouri. Yes. Uh, we saw last night the ousting of Lacey Clay, a longtime Democrat, a 10-time, a 10-time real, a 10-time incumbent um, ousted last night by uh, a nurse. Um, Cor- I think her, I'm trying to remember her name now. Corey is her first name, and her last name is escaping me. And I, I, Corey, Corey uh, what is, there we go, Corey Bush. Thank you, uh, Corey Bush. But what it also says is that there is a mood in this country um, that I think is seeping down ballot, that it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, the ideal, the, the one sort of, the coveted ideal of being an incumbent doesn't have the the flair uh, Gee, I and wonder the why that it once used to have. I wonder why they can't even get a deal in the worst economic because depression. they can't get a deal. It's insane. I mean, it's it's and Richard, you and I have talked about this. I mean, you know, Richard and I have known each other for years, and, and he's someone I greatly respect because I know how hard he worked to get to where he is, and it's not a story that he ever talks about. And I have deep respect for for even in your line of work. I mean, we have different jobs, Richard, but. But people who don't make themselves the story. So I've I've always respected you for that, and uh, you know it, it's it's really I think a frustration of mine to see this town cover this story as a process story and not trying to pull out the specifics of where we're at, you know, line by line. And it's not a soapbox. It's just like it, it's it's insane to me that this is being. The, through the lens of Washington, covered like a, a a shutdown. I mean, this is the stakes are so high. For it's just look at go on the museum's website and pick a front page of any town in America, a small town newspaper, and you will just 
if, if that doesn't provide you a dose of respect perspective, Washington, I, I mean, I don't, it's frustrating. So go ahead, Richard, I cut you off, but gee, the incumbent, thing, no, I, I wonder why, I wonder why. <laughs> and I think, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, St. Louis is its own situation, its own case about why, why that's interesting. But I think all across this country, and you're right, if you pick up any local paper, what you see is just that. The local, the local bakery is closing. The local gas station is closing. The local mom and pop butcher store that you're used to is closing. And what you're getting from Washington is they can't get a deal. Why can't you figure this out? And it's not a Democratic problem. It's not a Republican problem at this point. It is an American problem. And I think that is reflected in Donald Trump's poll numbers. It's reflected in the popularity of the United States Congress. I think that number is also starting to seep out into how in the people media. Do There's a Gallup governors. poll. People don't trust the media. the media. Go ahead. It's all of that. I think people are saying we just want leaders that will come out and tell us that the sky is blue and not to look at the sky is purple when we're looking outside and we see that the sky is clearly blue. But see, I, uh, I, I agree, Richard. But I think it's even deeper than that. And we've had um, some experts on from from GW. Uh, for example, who have really studied this? I mean, I, I actually think pre-COVID, I would have totally agreed with you. They want that, you know. There's this, you know, you have these long think pieces about you know the post-truth world that we all live in and whatnot. But I actually think it's deeper than that. I think people want to know when the heck they're going to get paid. When the heck can they get back to work? Are their kids going to go to school? This, these are like fundamentals. We talk about fundamentals of the economy. This is fundamental to uh, to Americans' lives. Is your kid going to yeah. school? Is are, are they going to pick up the trash? Are you safe to allow the delivery man or woman uh, to drop off something at your house? I mean, and and this is it's bizarre. Uh, it, it's it's beyond it's. Sad. Tyler Deaton, I mean, I want you to weigh in before I ask you what's on your radar, uh, but weigh in on this conversation that we're having. I'm amazed, look, just from looking at this from the other side of the aisle, I'm amazed to see how many incumbent Democrats are losing this cycle. Um, I don't think it's getting nearly the same coverage that it, that would get if it was happening in the Republican Party, which did happen in 2010 um, when the when the Tea Party first came around. So I think that there's got to be some sense for people like Cory Bush um, or Jamal Bowman up in New York City who who, who defeated Elliot Engel. Like, they're, yeah. they're not getting the coverage that I think that they deserve. Um, I think that there is a bigger movement that's happening. I think that the Democratic Party is reinventing itself to some extent. Um, these are younger voices. They're more diverse voices. And so, you know, as a younger person, I'm, I'm actually excited to always see younger people coming into Congress um, I'm excited to see the fresh blood. I just hope that people understand that we've got to work together. The parties have to come together. And so I don't want young people coming in if they're just going to be as rigid and as ideological as the people who they're replacing. And I think that that kind of goes to what Richard's saying about we've got to make this not a Republican problem or a Democratic problem. The parties have got to start finding ways to work together. Yeah, you know, and I just got on the terminal from my colleague on the Bloomberg White House team, Justin Sink. He just gave me the two-minute warning for President Trump. So if I interrupt you, uh, please, you know, I'm tossing to, to the president. Another another, yeah. um, uh, uh, another one is Ilan Omar, I mean, who's, who's got a, a tough re-election fight. Uh, Melton Moe is, is outraising Congresswoman Ilan Omar. Uh, so that's that's been pretty interesting to watch okay what's on your radar uh tyler deaton i'll tell you i just i think people have got to stay as focused on these senate races as they are about the president um i know that that's what gets a lot of the attention but today we have new polling in iowa that Joni ernst is up 
I think that more and more people are starting to have this idea that Democratic control of the Senate is a foregone conclusion, and it is not. I think right now I'd put my money on Republicans keeping the Senate majority, um, but it's definitely going to be determined in states like Iowa, North Carolina, and Maine with Susan Collins, and I think Susan Collins is going to win her re-election. It's, it, you do. You're predicting a Collins win. I, I'm, I'm obsessed with I, I said this at the top of the show. I, I, we talked to Greg Jarrell, who follow his reporting folks. He's a Bloomberg government reporter. I mean, he goes deep. I mean, when you talk to Greg, you've got to know you've got to know your counties. You've got to know your precincts. I mean, he could go. He is like an encyclopedia. Uh, and and uh, but, but the Iowa race is, is so fascinating to me uh, to see what's happening in, in Iowa. Um, Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.